Good morning, friends. It is good to be together, uh, particularly if you're new amongst us today. My name's John Thorpe. I'm the Senior Minister here at church, and it'd be great if you can keep your Bible open as we look at what John has to say to us today. Let me pray. Uh, Dear Lord, we thank you that we can gather together. Uh, We thank you that you speak to us through your word, and I pray that I will proclaim it faithfully now. And Lord, as as I speak, as we read your word, I pray your spirit will convict us of the things that we need to hear. Amen. Friedrich Nietzsche was a 19th century German philosopher, which makes me sound all very, you know, sophisticated. Uh, But he's quite famous, and he's particularly famous uh, for his declaration, God is dead. And it was a comment on uh, Western European Christianity. Uh, But he also made uh, a slightly more subtle uh, but equally challenging statement about Uh, people who profess to be Christians. He said, I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. And it speaks to the inconsistency of what we say we believe and the realities of our life and what he observed. Uh, And it's, it's a fair observation, isn't it? I mean, if we profess to have God's word. If God has actually spoken and told us how to live rightly, so in relationship with him, in relationship with the rest of humanity, and if he has given us his Holy Spirit to help us to do the right things that we are incapable of doing in our own strength, if all of those things are true, then why is it that when we look at people who call themselves Christians that they so often fall short. And so Nitschke observed the sinfulness of people who profess to be Christians and concluded that therefore there is no God. But when the Apostle John looks at these people who profess to be Christians and sees the sinfulness, he concludes that there is no Christ present. And so in the words from our passage last week, verse 9, just before where we started today, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. So John is not saying that Christians will now be sinless. But he is saying that Christians, uh, genuine Christians who follow Christ, that their heart's desire will be to be obedient. They should be characterised by living for Christ. And we, even when we fail to live up to that, that we actually then respond, so we confess our sin, we repent, and then we put things in place to make sure those things don't happen again. And so as an example, perhaps you know something like Netflix, you go, I can show self-control, uh, and so I'm going to choose wisely what I watch. Uh, For someone else, they might go, actually, I need to flee temptation altogether. Uh, I cannot simply have Netflix and choose wisely, so I'm not going to have Netflix at all. But whatever our reaction, as Christians, we need to be characterised by a desire to be obedient. And the Apostle John is clear that if we don't care about our sin, then it means one of two things. Either we've lost our way as Christians... Or 
there is no Christ in us at all. And wherever we stand, fortunately and thankfully, God says if we repent and turn back to him, he will be gracious and forgive us. So if being a Christian means living rightly, then our passage today gives us one example of what that looks like. It looks like loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. So 1 John 3, if you want to read it with me, anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We know in the bigger picture of Scripture that uh, we are called as Christians to love our neighbour as ourselves. We're to love those people out there in our community. We're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But in this particular passage, John is focused on how we love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's not a new message. This is something they've heard from the beginning. From the very first time they became Christians, they heard this message that we should love one another. And if you've been around Christian stuff for any time at all, we know that we should be characterised by love. So Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you so that you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And if we're going to love one another, then we need to position ourselves in a place where that can happen, don't we? So we can't just say, you know, I want to be part of the family, uh, but I'm not really into, you know, gathering together with the family. I'm not into birthdays or Christmas or anything like that. You know, if we saw that in our biological families, we'd look at that and say, well, that's pretty dysfunctional. That is not a healthy family. Families like getting together. And it's the same with Christians. Christians should love to gather. Not as a sense of obligation uh, or, you know, that we've got to come in on Sunday morning to get our weekly spiritual meal of, you know, meat and three veg. It's about gathering together as brothers and sisters. It's not about our format. This is a format that we've sort of chosen because we feel it would be helpful. As we open up God's words, we praise as we pray together. But really, almost everything we do today, we could do by ourselves at home. I could open up God's word and and read it for myself. I can pray. I can sing. In fact, it might even be better if I just keep that for home. But what we can't do is encourage one another. I can't, we can't spur one another on. We can't build each other up alone. And so we, we gather together. And by myself, I cannot be a testament to the uniting power of the gospel. When you look around this room, you see how eclectic it is. Not just in, in age, uh, but our, our cultural backgrounds, our educational backgrounds, our personal preferences in terms of our hobbies. Everything in this room, as you look around, everyone is completely different. We are a motley bunch of people. But we have something very fundamental in common, and that is Christ. So if we need to embrace love, then we also need to reject hatred. So continuing in our passage, verse 12, Do not be like Cain, who belongs to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. 
So as we've read this uh, letter of John, we know that he likes to set up contrasts. So we should love living in the light. We should hate darkness. We should love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should hate hatred. And he does that because he wants us to be absolutely clear. And so when he's talking uh, about hating, he says this is as serious as talking about murder. And we need to hear God's command just as seriously as talking about murder. And he does that by recalling a story way back from Genesis 4 about Cain and Abel. So both of them come and bring an offering to God, and one is accepted and one's rejected. And it's got nothing to do with the offering itself. It wasn't one was a good offering and one was a bit of a dud. It was a comment on the character of the person bringing it. And so God says to Cain, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And so right there in that moment, Cain has an opportunity to do something different. But instead of hearing that rebuke and changing, he turns that rejection and that anger and that envy and that jealousy on his brother and he murders him. And it's got nothing to do with what his brother has done to him. It's just simply what his brother represents. His brother is kind of the do-gooder teacher's pet who always gets picked first. And Cain hates him for it. But this isn't really just a Cain and Abel experience. This will be our experience as we live as Christians in the world. So verse 13, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We live in a pluralist culture. But as the values of our culture and the values of our Christian faith diverge, so does the animosity and the anger towards Christians. And it's getting to a point for some where we're no longer just self-righteous do-gooders who kind of kill all the fun, but we've actually become harmful and dangerous to the good order of our society. And that anger and that hatred ends up getting expressed as often ridicule. And for all of us, you know, depending on where our context is, whether it's school and uni, whether it's in our workplace, uh, whether sometimes for some of us it's with our family, but a time will come where we will experience that anger and that ridicule. And we shouldn't be too surprised because our worldview, our perspective of life is so fundamentally different to that of our culture. And as difficult as that is to endure, I think we've got to be careful not to then adopt the same attitude. Because it's tempting as we look around at the brokenness and the sinfulness of our culture to then become quite angry at it and kind of start to feel, you know, they're getting what they deserve. You see all the mess and you think, well, you know, kind of serves them right. You know, they've made their bed, now they should lie in it. I think when I see that in myself, that's an awful character trait to have when we know that God wants us to respond with compassion and generosity and humility. I'm not saying we should be permissive of sin or we should redefine sin so it's more culturally acceptable. 
But as we engage with the culture around us, we need to be more like Jesus and think about how he responded to the sinful woman who comes and wipes his feet with her tears and less like the Pharisees who stood there condemning her. So if that's true for how we respond to our culture around us, then it's even more true of how we should respond to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ should give us confidence that our faith is authentic. So verse 14, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. So what verse 14 adds, which is perhaps unique to everything else is said before, is this idea of assurance. So often our assurance is about how we feel. So if I feel close to God, then we feel confident of our salvation. And if I don't feel close to God, then I start to feel vulnerable. Uh, you know, am I really loved by God? Am I really safe? Will, when I stand before God, will he really say, welcome home? And John wants to move us away from just simply how we feel towards God and our life circumstances and place our confidence and our assurance in the tangible realities of a life that is transformed by the Spirit. So to put the whole letter of 1 John into a soundbite, we can be confident our faith is authentic if we listen to the truth of God's Word. And God's Word tells us that fellowship with God is possible because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. So it's not about our good works and our niceness. It's about God's mercy. It tells us that authentic faith uh, is real if we acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the genuine Son of God. If we confess our sin and live as Jesus commanded, and if we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. If those things are true for us, if we can see those things in our life, not perfect, but earnestly lived, then we should have confidence that God's Spirit is working in us. But equally, if we don't see those things in our life, if our life is actually more characterised by hatred than love, then that's a pretty good indicator that, in fact, we are faithless. Verse 15, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. The apostle is not saying murder is the unforgivable sin. That's not the message. The message is we need to take this as seriously as we take the issue of murder. So when God says do not murder, we, we don't debate that, do we? We go, absolutely. You know, generally speaking on the, on the sin spectrum, we go murder and general violent crime. They're definitely wrong. But then there's a whole bunch of others which we kind of go, well, we can be a little more tolerant. Uh, particularly those things that are a little more familiar in our life. And then we get quite good at justifying why they're not quite so bad. And what John wants to do here is he wants to take that notion and just smash it into little pieces and then grind it into a dust and then like fire it out of a cannon. Yeah, he wants you to be absolutely clear that loving your brothers and sisters in Christ isn't just an optional extra and we should be offended by hatred as much as we are offended by murder. No sane Christian would ever say you can be a Christian serial killer. We just take that as an accepted given. 
Okay, it's the same with hatred. We cannot, as Christians, hate our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because the temptation is to always sort of hear that type of message and then justify why my particular circumstance is a little different. And so some of my personal favourites, I don't hate them, I just don't like them. It's not quite the hatred level, so it's a bit more acceptable. Uh, I don't hate them, I just avoid them. Uh, Or the really moral high ground, I don't hate them, but I cannot be in fellowship with them because of their sinful behaviour. Now, there might be a time not to have fellowship with someone. That could be true. But so often we simply justify our own feelings and try to take the moral high ground. We should be as concerned about our hatred as we are about our murder. And John gives us a pretty good idea of what loving our brothers and sisters in Christ should look like. So verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's be clear, Jesus did not lay down his life simply because we are lovable or we are good people. He didn't lay down his life because it was convenient. It's not something you could fit in between work and picking up the kids from soccer. This is genuine, profound life-changing sacrifice. And God calls us and John calls us to not only be sacrificial in the big things, you know, being willing to lay down our life for another person, but also just in the day-to-day realities of life. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love with words or speech does not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. So love is about our attitude to others, but it's also about how we then act. And love is defined by the truth of the gospel. So Jesus shows us what love is, and love will point people to Jesus. So we can't just sit around and talk about the importance of love. If we just sit here today and go, love is so important, we should really love each other, and then leave today and do nothing about it, then we really have profoundly wasted our time. The whole point of gatherings, here is an opportunity to love. And that every day and we can, that overflows into our life together. And I think for the most part, actually, it's something which we do well together. I think one of the great blessings of of leading this community has been seeing just how people look after one another. Uh, Often I hear after the fact, which is brilliant, you know, just what's happening. It's like a, a web of relationships that go out every week. And it's just such a blessing to be a part of it and to see it happening. You know, as a general theme, we are a united community. We are not perfect, absolutely. But we are trying hard. Uh, I'm thankful to see that people are committed to gathering each week in things like connect groups, where we open up God's word together, talk about what it means for life, pray for one another. That's a huge blessing. And it's great to see how people are looking after each other's material needs. Yeah, so John here focuses on you know, the, the material needs of the people around them. But it's not just limited to that, is it? 
But we do, we all, that is part of our life together. We do share meals. We do help each other get to the shops and get to the doctor. Uh, that's wonderful to see. And we should do all of these things more and more. And I hope as a church that is what we are known for, that as people come in and they see our community, that they will see how Christ has made a real difference. They'll see what motivates us together, that it is a love for Christ that overflows into a love for one another. And if you don't have any time for any of that, then can I really challenge you to think about where you choose to spend your time? We've all got the same amount of time in the week. Funny that. So how do we choose to use our time to love others? And start simple. Don't make it complicated. Don't come up with a brilliant three-point plan. Just what's something simple you can do to love someone else. It might be as simple as a phone call, whatever it is. But whatever the opportunity, let me ask two questions for you to reflect on. Who can I love? And secondly, what can I do for their good and for the sake of their godliness? So verse 18, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. Let me pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the fellowship that we share together, that you love us, that you gather us together into your family. Uh, Lord, I pray that we can live that out uh, as a testament to your grace to us. Uh, Lord, help us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And where we have sinned against someone, help us to recognise that and repent. And where we need to forgive, help us to see that also. Uh, But Lord, in all things, I pray that we will live lives that truly honour you. We pray for these things in your son's name. Amen.